Uh, this morning, we are continuing our series on faith and doubt. And what's funny is last week, after we talked about Thomas and his doubts uh, in John chapter 20, um, one of you came up to me, it was like, love the word this morning, Pastor. Um, but you didn't talk about uh, those that doubted on the road to Emmaus. And I said, There's, patience, my son. There's, there are more weeks that we're going to be walking through. So today, uh, we are preaching on Luke chapter 24 and the road to Emmaus. And we're going to be looking specifically at chapter chapter 24, verses 13 through 34. There are Bibles on half of your chairs. You can share them together or you can pull it up on your phone. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 34. As Gavin encouraged earlier, I will reiterate for myself, this is a longer passage. So um, we're going to take this ride together. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there these last few days. What things? Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning. And they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing and that they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see and sure enough his body was gone. Just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all of the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus in the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it is getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them, who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we trust that your word does not return back void. And we pray, God, that you speak to us, shape us to be more like you, and remind us of the glory of who you are, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. In this series, we're talking about doubt 
and faith. And we're talking about how these are not necessarily diametrically opposed ideas. And when I doubt, I'm no longer a person of faith. Or in faith, I never have doubts. We're also addressing a term that has become common in the modern age of deconstruction. Specifically, theological deconstruction. Taking the faith that I was raised in or the belief system I grew up in and asking questions about it, breaking it down and assessing, do I really believe this? Last week, I shared three different stories of friends of mine. You can listen to that sermon online on YouTube. You can find that and watch that or on our podcast. Today, I'll share with you a little bit of my own journey. I'm a pastor. I'm 36. I've been doing ministry now for 13 years, which is crazy to, to say out loud. Um, and in that process, it's easy to say, oh, well, you're a pastor. This is really easy for you. You, you know, read the Bible all the time. You spend your whole week in the office preparing sermons, and that's so fun and easy. You pray every day all the time for hours. And so, you know, God really speaks to you, and you never have any questions about your faith. That's Honestly, just not true. And that's not true about theological formation and discipleship in general. I grew up in this church, this actual church. Um, some of you that are older took care of me when I was a baby. Um, and some of you that are younger will take care of me when I'm an old man. So we got it on, on both sides here. And I came into faith as a young man. I gave my life to Christ at eight at an outreach thing where they were talking about missing the plane, and I was eight, and I was like, I don't want to miss the plane. I, I raised my hand, but I didn't really own my faith until I was around 15 years old, and I had a youth pastor that walked me through what I now know is Quaker theology, um, which is sitting and reflecting on God's presence, learning spiritual formational prayer habits, quietly listening for God's voice in Scripture, and in my own times of, of prayer and seeking. And that's where Jesus really came alive to me. I also grew up in this tradition that we're in, and I learned some very simple ways to engage the Bible. I am so grateful for what I learned in this church, and even from some of you that are still a part of this congregation, about reading my scripture and setting that as a daily habit of praying or making space at the altar, that God works through me in prayer and in worship. And I learned these things. Then I went to my undergraduate degree, and I went to Rutgers, a non-Christian university, and I studied religion and sociology. And at college, I learned different ways to read the Bible than I had grown up reading Scripture. I learned that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not all written by disciples named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of those names aren't even ever actually the 12 disciples, but that was what I grew up believing. Yeah, the disciples, and they wrote these. They talked about different people that wrote them and how those letters came to be and who the relationships were. We looked at the Old Testament and compared ancient Israel to other ancient Near Eastern cultures and saw that there were similarities. And I started asking questions about my own faith. And I was like, how do I read this book? How do I understand this? It was also the first time in my life that I developed close relationships with friends that didn't come from the same background as me, that had very different views about faith or life. Some were atheists and had no faith idea. Some were Muslim and some were Buddhist, and we were all in one dorm room together talking about life. It was in that same context that I lived together with Christian roommates who had some of the deepest flaws of any people I had lived with. And we're asking these questions now about the people of faith and how I understand all of these and asking real questions that shook some of my assumptions about how God worked and how Jesus moved and worked in that. And in 
asking these questions, I discovered that Jesus Christ was both higher and lower and richer than I had thought of Him before. I saw Him moving and working in a vast community and history of the church, wider than the perspective I had in it. And I came from a tradition where we come to the altar and we wrestle. And now I had close friends that were Presbyterian who never went to the altar but studied like crazy and knew all these details about it. And I was like, oh, both of these are beautiful ways of understanding Jesus and coming into faith. And I am so grateful that I was taught a contemplative method of prayer. Because I went through times where I didn't hear God the way I was used to hearing Him readily and quickly, but I had learned patterns of sitting and waiting and patiently expecting God to move quietly through my soul over weeks or months or years. I came out the other side of it more passionate about Jesus, more confident in the Scriptures of what He had said, and then, okay, my deconstruction journey is over. I've rebuilt it. Cycled to 10 years later, a minister serving and lead pastor here, walking along the last five years of life and faith, I have seen ministers that I love that have guided me post the craziest stuff on the internet where I'm like, okay, I was discipled by you and now I kind of think you're nutso. So what does that mean about my life and faith and relationship? I have other ministers and Christian friends who have let me down or done things that are deeply hurtful. I, as a minister, have made mistakes and done things that were deeply hurtful to people who have followed me or worked with me or are my friends, and have had to learn as well the grace required to walk this faith journey as well. In one end, my deconstruction was on Scripture and intellectual. In the last five years, my deconstruction and reconstruction has been relational and about my heart and my emotions of who I am in this community and how we love and care for each other. For all of us, it's probably one of those two areas of where we struggle, whether it's the intellectual side of it or whether it's the emotional side of it. But deconstruction is real. Throughout this series, our big idea is learning to walk with Jesus through faith and doubt. How do we walk with Him in this journey and build a richer, deeper faith? A few months ago, in the world of deconstruction and doubt, uh, a very famous pastor um, from the center part of America had said something that on certain corners of the internet really blew up. What he said was, deconstructing faith has become very sexy and cool right now. And so a lot of people are asking questions and doubting because it's the cool thing. This blew up as many people responded, I think organically and truthfully, I'm not asking questions because it's cool. I'm asking questions because I'm deeply hurt and I'm wrestling with these ideas. I don't want to walk away from beliefs I grew up with. I don't want to ask hard questions about my life and my eternity. I don't want to do this because it's cool. I'm hurting and I need compassion in this journey of trying to rediscover Jesus and my faith. Jude chapter 1 verse 22 gives us a good guidance in this. He says to be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful and kind and gracious. You may not be going through that journey. Paul says this. Others may be on a different journey than you. Have grace towards them. Walk alongside of them with compassion and care. On the other end of this though, 
I think it needs to be said that doubt itself is not the end goal. It's not the target. It's not the trajectory. It's not the end of it. Being able to say, I see the flaws, the cracks, and the problems in something is not the solution. It's the midpoint on the journey. There can be a lot of healing in addressing untruths and abuses that were received by us, and they are real. But don't settle for mere awareness of the problems. Push into finding the truth deeper beyond it. As James 1 verse 6 says, But when you ask Him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. When we go through doubt, we feel that way. I feel like I'm on a sea and it's shifting and changing and I'm on a ship and I can't get my balance and my inner ear is off and I'm throwing up and how do I align and arrange this? Don't stay on the ship. Don't live in that uncomfortable nature. I want to remind before we dive back into the passage just really quickly around the cycles of faith again because if you weren't here, I think this is a helpful tool In deconstruction, doubt, and faith, we go through what is known as construction. We ask the question, what are we building in our faith life? What are we building in our journey of loving Jesus? Deconstruction, we ask the question, are some of the things we built not of Jesus? Are some of the things I've assumed about church or life or even how I read Scripture not what God has for me? And oftentimes, they do exist. We come in with assumptions And then how do we, on the other side, rebuild a stronger, richer, deeper faith? And hopefully my story today can also remind you it's not something you go through one time. Patterns of going through this, asking questions, finding Christ in it, rebuilding again. Let's move back into the text. As we look at Luke chapter 24 and we talk about the road to Emmaus, in this story, We have two disciples. It is Easter morning. It's resurrection morning. So Christ has died three days ago. He's resurrected. These men are on a seven-mile journey, a couple-hour journey, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're wrestling through this. They're asking questions. They're struggling through what's going on. Jesus appears to them. And I really like stories like this where Jesus is sort of cheeky because he's like, oh, what happened? Oh, who's Jesus? Oh, good point. Um, and then he's, I really like at the end where it says Jesus acted like he was going to leave. And I like Jesus being like, I'm about to go. And then they're like, no, no, stay. And he's like, oh, okay, all right, all right. I'm going to stay. I'll stay with you guys. But this story, let's look at it from the beginning. The first problem we see in the text is that they do not recognize that God is walking among them. He's there and they don't see him. He's with them. They're unaware. Verse 15 says, As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. I want to point out just a a quick um, hermeneutic thing with this passage. God kept them from recognizing him. This is a phrase that's used throughout Scripture, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's entirely God making something happen. Oftentimes, God working on people, not letting them see or hardening a heart, is God taking part in what's already happening in that person's life. That's the idea of Pharaoh, where God hardens his heart. It's not Pharaoh was a good guy and going to let the Israelites go if God never did that. It's God walking in conjuncture with where somebody already is and confirming that, And okay, I'm I'm in on this. So 
It's not that they're innocent and God made them not see. There's a part of them that aren't in a mindset ready to see and recognize God among them. They followed Jesus. They're not one of the twelve. They're not two of the twelve of the ones we know, but they were disciples, which means they most likely followed Jesus for three years, heard his stories, saw his miracles, recognized his teaching, and then they see him die, and their hearts are broken. They've had hope. They had lost it. Then women and some of the twelve say Jesus is resurrected, and they're talking about it intensely. They're worried about what's going to happen. They're discussing theology. They're discussing God, Jesus, what had happened, who He was. And they're talking about God so intently that they don't recognize God is there. We can oftentimes get tripped up in this, that God is a hypothetical idea. We study Him. We talk about Him. We we pray to Him. And we don't recognize that He's here with us right now in the moment. Sometimes we can get so fixated on about God that we fail to recognize that we're living a life with God. And this is what they're doing in the moment. On the ideas, what's the implications, how's it working, instead of just simply having their eyes and ears open to God's presence with them and among them. As we know, and Scripture is clear, the resurrected Jesus provided us with His Holy Spirit who never leaves us and is with us at all times, in all places. Even in our doubt, God is with us in those moments. Second thing we see for them is that their hurt is blinding them to the hope that they already have. They're so hurt, they can't see that the solution to their problem has already come. I won't reread the passage, but we often fail to recognize in reading the road to Emmaus that they are saddened and upset about what has happened, but they know that he resurrected. They know it. They say that to him. Jesus died three days ago. We're so sad about it, and we're so upset about it, but we also know that he's not dead, and he resurrected, and the women and the disciples told us all of this, and the glory and the promise of what's going to happen and all this, but we're still so upset that he died. Their grief has blinded them to the hope that they already have. This happens when we're grieving. When you lose someone, if you've gone through that process already in your life, and all of us will or have or are going to again, what happens is our perception of life shrinks. When you're grieving, it's like you're looking through a little pinhole. That's all that you see. I've counseled you know, church members and, and people when they lose someone that it, often the day after you've lost your loved one, it feels so weird that everybody else is just moving on with their lives. And you're like, wait, what? you're going to work? Wait, you're going to go see a comedy? I, the world just ended. How do you not know this? We can only see our grief in those moments. This is true in faith and life. When you've been hurt, taken advantage of, abused, or lost things, even lost sacred beliefs of yourself, the grief of that is real and is palpable. But when we hold on to that view of life, we begin to be unable to see all of the hope of what God is doing around us. And we just see the grief and we just see that tunnel vision. Grief is like living at the bottom of a well. 
You're at the bottom of the well, and all you see is one little pinprick of light at the top, and your life is that darkness. And what Christ is calling us to, and even to these disciples, to rise up out of that well and to see the hope that the resurrected Jesus provides. They are so hurt that even though they know He is alive, they are still grieving His death. And the last thing we see them struggling with is they could not find life in their Scriptures. They couldn't find it. They didn't see it in there. Their grief and their reading Scriptures, they know their Scriptures, and it's not helping in the process. This is maybe the biggest struggle in doubt, is the things that are supposed to help us or we're told help us spiritually aren't helping us anymore. I'm reading the Scriptures, it's not working. I'm praying, He's not responding. They had read their Scriptures And it still was grief. Jesus says to them, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote about in scriptures. What they had read was not making connections to their current problems. The scriptures were not speaking life to them. It's most likely, even in those times when we get there, that they don't even want to read scriptures anymore. If I was following Jesus and He had died, I would not want to go back and reread the old Scriptures that tell me about a Messiah coming to save us because I would read it and it would just upset me. He didn't come. I thought He did. He's dead. I had hope in this. Not worth it. I read the passage of the Israelites being set free from Egypt, but I'm living in my own enslavement to my own sin or the control of others in my life. I'm reading about the hope in there, but that's not what I'm seeing. I can't see life in the Scriptures. Our problems in this passage are slightly different. I think one of our struggles is that it is so hard to see God when we have so much access to brokenness. We have it all over the place. It's hard to see His goodness when I can, at any second of every moment of the day, see brokenness, see pain and destruction. The essence of the Christian faith is that God is good, His creation is good, He has made us good, and that while we are fallen to evil, He has a plan that is good to rescue all of us. That's the Christian hope. But, We can come to that understanding with all of the information around us. And honestly, the social media algorithms do not agree with that priority of goodness. They are built to reward controversy. If your social media feels that way, it's on purpose. Well, it's actually an accident of the algorithm that is intentional in the algorithm that tells us everything is chaos. The more problems in a thing someone posts, and the more controversial responses, the more priority it gets. And so, we are trained in the modern world to reward painful conversations. It's actually a rule of thumb. The fastest way to get the correct answer on the internet is not to post a question, but to post the wrong answer. That will get me the right answer faster, because someone loves to tell me I'm wrong, but not help me when I'm asking. And we live with this constant barrage that it's wrong, it's bad, it's falling apart, everything is the worst, no one agrees with each other, every problem is the worst problem the world has ever seen, and we're living in it right now. 
It can be exhausting. We ask big questions. How do I believe in a good God when I see things like the Ukraine? When I live through things like COVID-19? When I see things like neo-Nazis with tiki torches? How do I still see God as good when I see so much brokenness? Or maybe we ask a more specific question, more Christian question. How do I still trust God as good when I prayed for my friend's daughter or son or child who lost their life? How do I see God as good when He didn't seem to answer good prayers with good responses? Or we say something like, I used to believe, but my life has been such a mess. And I've been hurt so deeply, or I've made such bad decisions, and I'm praying for God to guide me to make better decisions or to open doors for me, and He's not doing it, and my life's still falling apart. How do I trust this good God? I don't see it. It's not working its way out. These moments give us a lot of compassion for the Israelites in the desert. Exodus chapter 14, verse 12. They respond to Moses like this. Didn't we tell you that this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. We read these stories of the Israelites, and it's very easy to be condescending towards them. Oh, <laughs> you brats. You, you don't get it. It's Moses, and God is doing, and you, come on, have some appreciation. They are dying in the desert. Have you ever been dehydrated? It's terrible. Your mind starts going. You're freaking out. Your body's shutting down. You're shivering. You can't control anything. Have you ever skipped a meal? It's terrible. I'm getting all hangry, and I, I'm mad, and I want to eat. Imagine that day in and day out for weeks. Imagine that not just for yourself, but you're watching your children getting skinnier and skinnier, begging you for food that you can't produce in a desert where God brought you, and the questions you're asking. Now, we would say to them, ah, uh, he split an ocean and you walked through it. He did 10, 10 plagues and set you free. There's a fire in the sky guiding you forward. There are clouds in the day guiding you forward. Do you not see and remember that? The truth of being human is that when we are clouded with our own brokenness and suffering, it is really hard to see the hope of what God has done or is doing. Our grief clouds us. And this is true for many of us walking through doubt and deconstruction. Our grief is clouding us to the hope of what God can and is doing. The second thing is very, very real. Um, and I give a lot of compassion to people who go through this. That people speaking for Jesus have overshadowed Jesus. Very real. I understand that. I get that. I listened to the Who Killed Mars Hill podcast. I walked all of that journey, listened to it. I followed that church in the early 2000s and saw abuse by pastors over their congregation. I've read a church called Tove, breaking down another church failure of Bill Hybels in Chicago. I followed them, went to those conferences, and watched the abuse of leadership in those church settings. I follow Hillsong. They used to be a part of our denomination, love their pastors and their music, and have also seen the last year 
of a lot of struggles, abuses, and problems in that church organization. And it's very easy to say it's not about pastors or leaders, it's about Jesus. And that's absolutely true. But what we sometimes miss is, yeah, but that guy's the one who taught me about Jesus. Now, what do I do with that? They're the one who led me into it, and now I see how dark and abusive they are, or they've abused me and taken advantage of me. What do I do with that? I want to just say, on behalf of church leaders, I am sorry. I am sorry for the failures and frailty of humans and those that lead in churches who are given a sacred stewardship, who use it for their own advancement and power. I am sorry. I have experienced it myself by pastors I have loved and followed. I have let church members down myself and have walked through that. We are humans who are fallen in need of Christ's grace. We need to show that grace to each other in this process. I am now realizing that there's a real tonal shift from that point to this next one. Last point. We have too many church Bible bumper stickers. Yeah, I I didn't realize it when I wrote it down. It's only in the preaching of it. Let's look at some examples. All right, give me the first one. Warning, in case of rapture, car is unmanned. Nonsense. Okay, next one. If Jesus had a gun, he'd still be alive today. That one makes no sense for multiple reasons. If he didn't die, a lot of things wouldn't have happened. And also, uh, he is alive. Isn't that the point? He's alive. I don't know who needs to tell that person, but he's not dead. That's like the center point of the faith. All right, give me the last one. God said it. That settles it. Often it's God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? What you're missing in this bumper sticker is God said it. I interpret it this way. That settles it. The Bible's really big, really complex, and Sometimes we miss the fact that it's our job and responsibility to to interpret it and understand it and teach it to one another. And when we make the Bible into bumper stickers or into memes or into Hobby Lobby wooden signs we put in our kitchen, when we do that, we take a rich, complex, deep, beautiful story and we reduce it into a soundbite. And when we do that, We train ourselves to see the Bible as tiny little bites of life coaching. A little bite to give me hope. A little bite to correct somebody. A little bite to confirm my biases. A little bite to do X, Y, or Z. Instead of seeing the Bible as, and we say that at the church, so you should almost be able to say this along with me, as a unified story, both human and divine, that leads to Jesus. It's not a book that we grab bites of. It is a story that invites us into it in order to understand the rich beauty of a God that loves us so much He would embody humanity itself, die in our place, and conquer evil and death forever. That's the story. Okay. Let's see what God has to say of grace. For the road to Emmaus, we see that Jesus is present in their pain and disappointment. 
when you read the entirety of the story of Scripture, God is actually most present in our pain and our disappointment. He is most close in those moments. He draws in in those moments. He is there. Your grief may be narrowing your focus that you can't see him, but rest assured he is there. And this is why I think it's great that our emotions do not dictate where and when God is. I may not feel him. Doesn't mean he's not there. I may not see him. Doesn't mean he's not there. He is walking alongside of these two disciples in their grief and doubt. They can't see him. He's there, and he's walking with them. Second, God graciously and patiently reveals the story to them. He is so patient when we struggle in doubt. He is so patient when we are hurting. We may not be. Other Christians may not be. We should be. But rest assured that Jesus is so patient and kind in walking alongside of us. It's a seven-mile walk. That's several hours. It gets dark while they're walking and talking. And Jesus is explaining all of this to people he's already explained all of this to for three years. He does get a little snippy at that one point in the middle. But then he patiently reveals the Scriptures to them again. And if you are going through this yourself, if you have a loved one going through this themselves, know that God is always patiently working for the good of those who love him and honestly, for the good of all of those who bear his image as human beings. He's working for their good. He's drawing them slowly and patiently. He's working in you slowly and patiently. And third, There is a deep part of them that whether they knew it or not was responding to the resurrected Jesus. A part of them they couldn't articulate, couldn't see, was crying out. They used the phrase, I think it's one of my favorite phrases in Scripture, did our hearts not burn? Something was happening. And I love this in church settings when someone is new to faith, doesn't have the language to articulate all of this, and they just say, like, something's happening in me. I just felt it in service. Or when you were preaching and you said that thing, I I felt it. When they were singing that song, I felt it. When someone prayed over me, I felt it. Even when we can't understand it or see it, there is a part of who we are made in the image of God that responds to who he is as the resurrected Jesus. So I want to challenge us from this story in two ways. The first is seeing the Bible as that unified story, both human and divine. And I want to share a brief story. Eugene Peterson, uh, pastor, theologian, he wrote the translation, the message translation of the Bible. Um, he was Bono from U2's favorite theologian. He, in his book, Eat This Book, shared a story of being in a park and watching a three-year-old with their dad. Their dad's reading a book. And so the three-year-old was reading a book and had the book open and was moving their finger along the page like their dad. And it was obvious that the three-year-old couldn't read, but knew this is what you're supposed to do. So I'm, I'm reading, and I'm not actually understanding anything. And he said, boy, doesn't that feel like what we do with the Bible all the time? 
Like, I got to just check it off my box. Like, I, I got to get through it. I'm thumbing through it. I'm getting through it. I'm trying to just moving along with it. We just go through it. The Bible is the most owned book that is the least read of any book in existence. There are like 73 million of them sold in the last five years. And we're more biblically illiterate than we were 50 years ago. And this is what Eugene Peterson says about it. He says, This may be the single most important thing to know as we come to read and study and believe these holy scriptures. This rich, alive, personally revealing God as experienced in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, personally addressing us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, at whatever age we are in, in whatever state we are in, Christian reading is participatory reading, receiving the words in such a way that they become interior to our lives, the rhythms and images becoming practices of prayer, acts of obedience, ways of love. It is not something that we read. It is something that we consume and that consumes us. And I'll give you one little pass with it. You don't always have to understand it. You don't. Just enter into it. Let it, the story wash over you. See yourself in the story of what's happening in Joseph's life. See yourself in the story of where Jeremiah is suffering. See yourself in the story of where Paul is bringing the good news of Jesus. And see yourself in the story so that you may see Jesus with and in you. The second thing is make space to listen and feel God's presence. I say all of that about the Bible, and I believe we need to be soaking in it, sitting in it, consuming it. But I will also say the Bible is not the only thing God wants to speak to us through, with, and in. And as a pastor in our tradition, there is a tendency where when I'm asking someone, how is your spiritual life doing? The automatic response is, ah, I haven't read my Bible as much lately. Or how's your spiritual life doing? Great, I've been reading my Bible every day. How's your spiritual life doing? It's been a while since I've opened my Bible. As if that's the only thing God is doing or can work in our lives. And I will give you a deep, dark secret. Most of the history of the church, people could not read the Bible. It is not the only way to know God. Because He walks alongside of us, and He speaks with us, and He is here in the room. He can speak to you directly without the mechanism of Scripture because He's alive and He's talking and He's working with you. Absolutely, Scripture, key, central way of knowing God and the story of Jesus. But He's also alive and speaking to you right now. I think it's important that the moment they realize it's Jesus is when He participates in a ritual of Christian community. He breaks the bread and they go... Jesus. Well, then he's gone. And in that moment, he's taking part in the life of the church, the body of the church. We can know and see Jesus by choosing to commit together whatever our journey may be of doubt and faith, of life and struggle and hurt, to say, I'm going to do it with each of you, and I'm going to hope that you can show me a lot of grace, and I am going to try with the Holy Spirit's help to show you a lot of grace 
as we figure this out, as we discover Jesus together, as we lead each other towards Jesus, and as we together commit to lead those outside of our community towards him as well. If you'll pray with me, if you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. I want to lead you in a prayer this morning, and then I'm going to give you space today. Space to listen for a moment, space to invite God to speak to you. And as we do, I will tell you the altar space is open, and I'll tell you these carpet squares are not magical, but there is something sacred about a physical gesture, moving, getting up taking a step forward, coming to your knees, opening your hands and your palms. These are all physical things that connect to the spiritual things of what God is doing in our lives. And so I'll open up this space as well for us to just listen, to hear God speak, invite his voice to work in us. But let me pray over you first. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you don't know him or maybe it was a really long time and you realize in this moment you need to recommit, I want to give you a chance to just pray a prayer of one step in that journey, of one step of saying yes to Jesus, one step of recognizing his presence and power in your life. And I'll invite you to pray that with me this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus, use it as a moment of recommittal. Jesus, in this moment, I trust in you. I seek you. I seek your presence and your power. The Jesus, I recognize my need of a Savior. And I believe that you came to earth, you lived as both God and man in one body, that you taught, you loved, you cared, you healed. You lived a perfect life. And that in your death on the cross, You took my place for sin and shame and you conquered the forces of evil. Three days later, I believe you resurrected full of life and in that resurrection, I can have the fullness of life in this earth and in eternity. Jesus, you gave your life for me. Today, I commit one step of following you, of giving my life to know you better and to know you as Lord and Savior. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen.